A very warm welcome to the next in our online conversation series. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's Cathedral, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the life of the cathedral. My conversation this time is with Tom McLeish, who is Professor of Natural Philosophy in the University of York in the Department of Physics. And like me, Tom is a licensed lay minister in the Church of England. Our conversation was absolutely fascinating. We explored science and faith and whether the two are opposed to each other or whether, in fact, they work together much more closely than often people allow. We thought about truth. We thought about various parts of the Bible, particularly Job and Paul. And we scratched our heads a little bit about how we begin to reflect on asking really good questions and how the technique of asking good questions is true both for science and for faith. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Tom. Tom, it's lovely to have you with us today. Um, talking about um, science and faith, so I thought a good place to begin was um, if you told us a little bit about yourself and your interest in science and why you love science so much. Well, it's great to be here, Paula. Thank you very much indeed. Yes. Um, well, I've let's say I've been a scientist, I suppose, since I was about two and a half. Um, probably <laughs> vague memories. There's not a time I can remember when I haven't been fascinated with with the world around me. I remember my grandmother giving me a little microscope when I was quite little and um, looking at, at uh, flies' wings through it and and blood cells and bits of carrot and then having a little telescope and getting really excited um, about the rings of Saturn. Um, and and even the idea of doing an experiment, the word experiment, I remember used to send a little shiver up my eight year old spine. So so um, uh, <laughs> nerdy, if you like, but but I, I just just fascinated by by the world around and 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 what we couldn't see with our naked eyes was behind it. Um, so that was me. And, and, and I realised later on that the, that, the, that the science that I was most interested in was the science called physics, um, uh, that it somehow seemed to dig at the roots. I was in, just fascinated by the way that mathematics also began to describe the workings of the um, the inner workings of the world from planets to, to atoms. Um, uh, and so that that led me into uh, my, my scientific studies and um, as I was turning that sort of amateur and high school story into being a professional early career scientist, I was also um, establishing a Christian faith at the same time um, through ups and downs and ups and bumps. And again, but part of the same um, idea to understand the world. Can how do I make sense? How do I live? How do I move forward in this 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 world of people and good and evil and hope and despair and um, and wrong and right? In much the same way that how do I how do I navigate this world of of, of light and atoms and stars and, um, and 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 life? So well, that so that's me. And and then, but many years later, um, here I am, very fortunate after. An academic career which has taken me through four or five universities in the UK and, and one in the US and um, uh, as, as a new professor of natural theology which is or natural philosophy I beg your pardon natural philosophy uh, which is the old word for science which I much prefer I came to realize that people were 
put off by science, partly because of the sibilant word and also because it it has a knowledge claim. It comes from that Latin scio, I know things, whereas the old word for science appealed to me very much more, natural philosophy, love of wisdom, philosophia, love of wisdom do, to do with, 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 with nature. And because the other part of my experience is being radically interdisciplinary, I, I knew I was a scientist, but I love all other subjects and languages and literature as well. I, I, I'm delighted that my current role involves not only doing core science, but exploring links between the sciences and the humanities, which include theology, but include literature and history. And philosophy as well. Well, <laughs> that's a little bit of me, strange, but true. That's wonderful, thank you. And I've been very much enjoying your book, Let There Be Science. Oh. And one of the things that I was really struck about in that book is that you, um, in the introduction, you talk about how people love to ask that question about whether faith and science can be reconciled. <laughs> and you say, that's completely the wrong question. Um, could you tell us what you think the right question might be yeah. for that? Of course I could. Well, it took me a long time to realise it was the wrong question, because you can't keep thinking, well, if people keep asking me this question, it must be a good question. Um, how do you reconcile? How do you reconcile your science and your faith? Oh, gosh, maybe that's a problem. Um, I don't know why it's a problem, because I've never felt the problem. Um, as I said just now, it, it felt very much like ways of understanding my predicament in the world and how to navigate the world. Um, and then I, I realised that the that that the problem was with the question that you know it's a little bit like that. Um, uh, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Question. You know, um, well, well, how do you answer that? Well, yeah, of course I've stopped. Well, no, I because in start I, the question assumes you'll be glad to know um, assumes a, a, a world that that doesn't bear resemblance to the real the real world. Um, so instead, there's a better question. That's a better question. Of course, of course, I, you know, I, I slightly, I, I'm slightly tongue in cheek here. Well, well, I have to respect the fact that the that the narrative, the notion that there has been throughout history and is now a conflict between the scientific and the religious or the theological is so widespread. It's in education and media. Of course, it needs to be addressed. The fact that it is a false narrative based on invented evidence of polemic, not on history and real thinking, is another question. It does need to be addressed. But I found the, the real question was, for me by then, as a Christian being, being asked this, the real question is, well, uh, it is somehow extraordinary and wonderful that humans can do this thing called science, that we can, that our insight moves beyond the surface of the world, the immediate appearances, the phenomena, into and beyond to the structures, the causes, the effects, the mechanisms, the, um, the quantum wave functions and all that underneath. It is amazing that we can do this. This is an extraordinary gift. Why do we have this gift? And particularly if we're in the kingdom of God, if we are Christians, if we think about theologically about some things, then we need to think theologically about everything. The question becomes, given that we have this ability, this gift, what is it for? What is the role of the gift of science within what Jesus called the kingdom of God? Now, we have the gift of medicine, we have the gift of education, we have the gift of being able to cook nice food, we have to, the gift of being able to talk many different languages, we have, to, we have the gift of music. 
one could ask the same question art one can ask this great question and people have done um people have written lovely books about the theology of of, of music or art um but uh, we need to answer the question well within the kingdom of god and the purpose of the story of the kingdom of god what is science for uh, why has it been gifted to us so i think thought that was the that was the question that i was interested to uh, ask and that uh, the book faith and wisdom in science is the my first attempt at initial sketch of what the answer or the direction to the answer might be one of the things that you have said is that the Bible's message is of a God who loves science and a science that needs God. And I thought that was a really striking thing to be able to say. I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit for us about what, what you mean in that phrase. Yeah, um, of course. It, yeah, it, it's, it's shorthand for a, a very great deal. Um, well, the, the, the God loves science bit is comes from the idea of science as gift, not, you know, so People within the church think of science and outside as a threat to belief. It's not a threat to belief, it's a gift. So if the gift of medicine is in order, that's not a difficult one, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's in order so that we can heal um, the brokenness within people's physiologies, within people's bodies. We can heal, we can, we can be involved in the work of healing. Um, so the work of science, the gift of science is also gifted to us. It's a good thing. It enables us to re-image the whole universe in our minds in a way that help us to understand it so in a way that god loves all the gifts that god bestows on god's people that's what i meant by that um science needing needing god uh, where that unpacks is is partly to do with the the way that science is framed um in our public world um it is framed in a conflictual way in in many ways i mean it is of course framed wrongly as we've already touched on as conflicting with religious faith well in fact you know, the story is that the um that the, the people of faith have been have been those driven by their faith and through ideas of new science and still do uh but but the the way that science is currently perceived particularly in the developed west I think is in a very dangerous place. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, and I think the COVID um, pandemic has, has sort of brought this out. Of course, it's brought science to the fore in, in some very helpful ways, but it's also shown us that there's this divorce. There's not a public confidence between science as culturally accessible, something that I can understand and you can understand and we can talk about, even if we're not scientists. Now, it's not that's not just because science is expert. I mean, music is expert. Um, you know, I couldn't pick up a violin and play a violin concerto to save my life. But it doesn't mean to say that I can't enjoy people who do and even think critically about who I prefer, whose performance of like, Brahms violin concerto I prefer. But um, we can't we don't do that with science, but we could do so. Um, uh, the, 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 and, and I think if we did it, we would, if we were able to fill in what I sometimes call the sort of the, the missing rungs of the ladder from from just public audience and contemplation of science, full all the way to professional practice, like that ladder is completely smooth in the case of music or drama or art, um, then uh, science would be in a better position to to rest constructively and critically um, in, in a sort of a publicly engaged way and i think that the church 
can be and, and I have evidence I've worked with churches for some many years on on how churches can engage with and support science and it works amazingly well so that's where I say I that's what I think I'm beginning to mean by 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 science needing God so it certainly, certainly needs the church to recognize and implement science as gift and you mentioned at the start that your um, title now as a professor of natural philosophy is a kind of a, a nod to the historic understanding of science. And um, when we used to call it natural philosophy, it was very much the terrain of religion. Um, and for me, one of the really interesting things to notice is that now science is very much not the terrain of religion, as we've been talking about just now. And um, what happened, um, in your view, that meant that um, natural philosophy turned into science and science stopped stopped talking with religion and probably more importantly religion stopped talking with science yes it, it, it this is a complicated thing and i think this is this is not my um regime of expertise there are real philosophers and historians of scientists i point people in the first instance perhaps to peter harrison uh you know university of queensland was oxford has um, written uh, about this but many other people too uh it, it's not disconnected with the fragmentation of our disciplines as a whole, of course. Um, the fact that science doesn't talk with religion philosophy so much is part and parcel of why science doesn't talk very much with literature and poetry um, and history. We've fragmented our academic landscape in a way that doesn't match, perversely, the world that that landscape is supposed to talk to and and with so that's one of the reasons i think the other reason is that um and this is a, a, a this is a, a sort of western rather european north european even protestant sort of problem um uh, is is that in the 19th century there were power games going on um and the the extraordinary power perhaps too much power vested in an institutional church and in a very classically dominated education gave rise to quite a bit of resentment when thinking of the Tyndale and the Huxleys in the scientific community um, and there you have William Hewell Master of Trinity College Cambridge in the 1830s deciding that the multiple fragmented scientists of geology and, 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 and botany and astronomy and so on needed to club together and get called scientists, that was the neologism of 1836 or so, um, as opposed to artists and so there was a polarization that cracked apart. Goethe, uh, his wonderful renaissance finger on on another problem to do with poetry he says this enigmatic thing um in andy morphogi in about 1810 he says that science and poetry forgotten their common origin uh and they need to remind it and here's a thing i've noticed i've got fascinated just the last couple of years with the relationship between science and poetry by the way and i've noticed that there's a sort of triangle of science poetry and theology and if anyone wants to write about the connection between any of those two of those three, like Malcolm Guyte, for example, wants to write about poetry and theology, they find themselves talking about the third. Malcolm talk, finds himself talking about science, as Coleridge talked about little creators, like little I am's, and so on. So th there's a there's the uh, which brings us to the Romantic movement. So that's another ingredient in the pot. The Romantic movement, with its enormous of hubris, human hubris. Um, of, 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 
sort of dominance um, and the possibility of all knowing humans over over uh, creation. Um, I, I think so. I think there are many, many, many strands. Um, oh, I, and also what, perhaps one more: the the deliberate whitewashing of medieval Christian thought, which goes right back to the early modern era. People like Francis Bacon and 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 um, the early uh, early modern philosophers who pretended that when they were taking some steps away from medieval scholasticism, they were completely rejecting the show. And one throws babies away with bathwater and one does that. In particular, the very theological foundation of experimental science that Francis Bacon himself espoused. So lots of strands. It's complicated, suppose I say that. Um, certainly is, but it's lovely to hear you talk about it. Um, really, really interesting. Um, which brings me really on to one of my um, favourite topics with um, the Bible. And one of the things that I was really struck by in reading your writing is that um, there are two of my favourite things that you talk about quite a lot. One of them is the book of Job and the other are the writings of Paul. Um, so um, I thought we'd talk about both of them. Oh, um, yes, please, boy. Yes, that would be great. I really love that. So let's start with the book of Job. Um, tell me why you love the book of Job. Well, I remember, oh gosh, I mean, I know I'm a bit weird and many of my Christian friends don't understand this at all. But So I'd love to hear what your response when you, you talk in the in, in church context about loving the book of Job. How can one not love the book of Job? I remember as a young Christian, my 20s, I guess, um, doing what everyone should do. You know, you give the Bible a complete read through from beginning to end. I mean, you need to know all of this thing. And hitting the book of Job and thinking, my goodness, this is stunning. This is beautiful, particularly when when the Lord Yahweh gets a, t a chance to speak, you have to wade through these 37 chapters of argumentation between Job and his erstwhile friends about why he's suffering as a righteous person and they think it's because he must have sinned and he knows it's not. And of course, the book is about so much. Here's the first thing. By then you realise the book is about so much more than, quote, the problem of suffering or the problem of pain. It's deeply, deeply philosophically entrenched in the chaotic wild side of nature. It's like a flip side to Genesis. It's, it's wonderful. And then in chapter 38 to 40, God, Yahweh, the Lord finally speaks out of the whirlwind. Who is it that darkens my counsel? And he gives what is known as the Lord's answer. But it's a funny answer in many ways. And one of the reasons it's odd is because it's in the a form of a long poem. Every verse of which is a question. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know the ways to the storehouses of the hail? Can you lead out the great bear and the Pleiades, the constellations and so on? And so do you know where the whirlwind comes from, the desert wind? Um, and by that stage, you see, I had, as a scientist, already known there's a problem with the way we portray science as being about answers. We do this all the time, the big, you know, way we do science programming this all the time, but science isn't about answers. Science is far more about questions. That's the creative side of science. It's asking the right question. Einstein knew this, Heisenberg knew this, Marie Curie, all the great scientists have written about how important the formulation of questions are in making a pathway to understanding the natural world. So here we have the best Hebrew poetry in the entire Bible. And that's not me. That's Robert Alter, Berkeley Hebrew scholar. If Robert says it, OK, who am I to argue? Uh, is a, a, a book, a poem of questions about the natural world, which actually all bite 
on to the natural world. Why are the stars of the Pleiades clustered together while the stars of Orion are cast apart is a really important question. Now, the answers aren't there, but there's an agenda there. And of course, um, I was able to read the whole of the whole of the book and connect much of that um, nature wisdom, questioning wisdom to what went previously in the book of Job and found that uh, I found that much of the secondary scholarship on Job is woeful. It sounds awful to say this as a scientist, not a professional theologian at all. But a scientist reading this book, not anachronistically, but just as a human resonance with questions about the natural world, knows that much of the theology has missed the point of this book entirely. It's, it's, it's about the chaotic and wild side of nature. So I don't know what you think about that, but that's, that's how, how you've reacted to Job or what... Well, I, I, I love your answer um, um, because in a, in a weird way um, I come at it with exactly the same kind of responses but from a bible perspective because of course people like to say what does the bible say about um, and more than any other when I'm invited to give a talk um, people will say will you come and talk to us about what the bible says about um, fill in yeah. the blank as, as though it has uh, it's it's your answer book. I often say that um, sometimes people seem to think that the Bible is an encyclopedia, um, irritatingly ordered out of alphabetical order, um, and that you just have meant to get to the entry, um, and then you'll be able to find what the Bible says about. And at which point I want to say, well, you've clearly never read the book of Job, because the book of Job is not what the Bible says about. It's the, the really elegant questions and how you get the most elegant questions by exploration. Um, you get it to it through um, grief and suffering and reflecting on grief and suffering. You get to it through observing the natural world. Um, you get to it through crass pastoral conversations with your fr so-called friends who come and say awful things to you. You yeah. get to it through religious experience. And you've got these kind of lovely things whirling around each other. And, uh, and I give exactly the same response, but just from a slightly different perspective. Um, that it's all about asking the, the right questions or even keeping on asking the questions, I think. Yeah. And celebrating the questions and celebrating the questions for which we currently have answers, not pretending the universe is all neat and tidy, not even our answers to it are neat and tidy. Yeah, there's only one bit of the book of Job I don't like, which is the very final bit when, you know, everything's all resolved and God says, oh, well, never mind. All your children died. I'll just give you some new ones and it'll all be fine. And it feels as though somebody came along later who liked to have a few tied up ends and they kind of put an, an ending on, which for me kind of slightly undermines the power of the rest of it. But I don't, I don't know what you feel. Yeah, well, I don't like the prologue either. Um, <laughs> but. It always seems to me as being a bit of a comic. The prologue and the epilogue. Where, well, if I think of Job as a theatre, I find the I find the prologue and epi, epilogue beyond, be, belong on the proscenium, but also in front of the curtain. They're little sort of warm up and closing acts, but they didn't really quite get the main scene. And then the curtains open. You have this extraordinary main scene that Blake painted. But but I uh, I think that's my problem. I don't think that's the Book of Job's problem. So we were, we were talking about Job and um, and as you said, um, when you started answering, um, people look at you slightly bemusedly when you say you like Job. Um, my, I have exactly the same experience when I say I like Paul. Um, I go and say I'm a Pauline scholar and people kind of look at me slightly pityingly as though I, I maybe haven't read it and realised that it's complicated and difficult. You're a woman, aren't you? Yes. yes. What are <laughs> yes. you doing liking Paul? 
<laughs> so um, tell me why you like Paul. Well, you know, actually, I have a mixed relationship with, I, you know, I'm not sure I'd have liked the guy, um, but I think it's quite scary. But, um, but of course, there are moments of just sheer theologically inspired brilliance. And look, you know, anyone who can say in God, there is no Jew, no Gentile, no man, no woman, no male, no female, no slave, no free. Look, as his climax has got somewhere. I mean, you've got, you, you, you've got a, um, but of course, once, so here's the thing with me and Paul, once I got my mind around Job and, and the way that the created physical material world is created good, including its wild, open, um, stormy, floody, lightningy, um, unresolved, uh, awesome side and celebrated. Then, and, and what is more, so the other thing to say about Job, if we get to Paul, is that Job is talking about the, the three-way relationship between creator, material creation and the human and where we stand, where we stand, where these three stand in relationship with each other. And the, the relationship between the material world, the human made in the image of God and God creator um, is, is one of the great themes of this Bible narrative, this story that we read that we now find ourselves in. That's what the book of Job points us to. Once, you're, once the Job has been your guide in beginning to hear that motif, that tune, that, that song on the shadows or whatever it is, you start to hear it in other places of the Bible much more clearly. And you hear it in Paul. And of course, Paul, yeah, he picks his and you hear it in the Gospels too, but you hear it in Paul all the time. And it's this three-way relationship between the human, the creation, and the divine, which for Paul comes again and again and again in the way he articulates the Evangelion in the gospel. So my, you know, at the, we, could, we could go, we could go Corinthians, we could go Colossians, we could go, we could go Romans, but let's just start right at the at Romans 8, you know, at, the, at the, 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 the very central bridge passage between all that Abrahamic stuff of fulfillment of the law to um, now, you know, that there is, there is, there is, uh, there is, there is, to, to, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, neither flood nor famine nor sin nor war, nothing. Paul gets there through this thing called the groaning of creation. It's a birth pang. It's a it's a a, um, a painful birth litany of creation itself groaning until the daughters and sons of gods are revealed in their glory. Um, so until the relationship of God, the humankind, and the physical creation is put right. So so for Paul, we're not talking about a sort of spiritual. You know this this idea that Paul is a dualist has, has to be completely completely wrong. This isn't right at all. Um, it, the, it, Paul line theology is embedded in creation, uh, and it, it pops up there. It pops up many times, many times as well. So take 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 one other example, which I'd love to hear your reflection on Paul, which is the, the Corinthian church. Which you know his his relationship with the Corinthians broke broke him. I mean, probably almost certainly had a nervous breakdown over that lot. Um, and there he is in Second Corinthians, or we call Second Corinthians, actually probably his fourth letter, of course, to the Corinthian church. 
having to summarize the Christian experience and calling. And I think I'm, I love to say I think Paul would be brilliant on the Today program because he was he was the master of the soundbite. And, and when he is got to the back of the back to the wall, so but Paul, sorry, we've only got two minutes for the sport. Um, can you tell us, you know, what is this strange movement about? Are you rebels? Are you zealots? Are you are you heretics? Jews? What what are you? What are you? Christ, Christ, what do you call yourselves? And Paul said, I'll tell, John, Nick, I'll tell you what we are. We're about healing broken relationships. That's what we do. It, he called it the ministry of reconciliation Re because God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos, all of ordered material creation to himself. It, it can't help. It. it comes up at his most important um, focal moments of describing the gospel. And that is the nexus, that point. You see that relationship between the created order and God and past and future and our human relationship to the created world is where science is. Science is the gift that enables us to adopt and work at that place of calling. Paul, great for scientists. Yeah. Now, does that make sense to a Pauline scholar like yourself? <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Um, you make my soul sing when you said um, Paul's not a dualist, um, because in a sense, that's kind of a, to think that Paul is into dualism is to entirely misunderstand what he's talking about. Because, as you know, dualism is about saying there are two things. One of them is good. The other one is bad. And the one that is bad is irredeemably bad. And I would say right at the heart of Paul is that there is nothing that is outside redemption nothing that cannot be redeemed by God um, and what he's talking about is old creation which will come to an end and new creation which will never come to an end so it, there is a duality there's a two-ness but it's not about good and bad it's about oh. recognizing that there is good um, in the world that God has created and God is in the business of reconciliation yeah and a sort of narrative continuity um, Indeed, so yes. And the Trinity. I love the way that Sarah Coakley uh, uh, puts it. Cambridge feminist theologian. Of, I mean, you can't really put anyone in a bracket, but there we are. Uh, and I love the way Sarah says. Look, the great thing about Trinitarian theology is, is that three into two doesn't go. Um, you know, we, we we learn that early on in our, our mathematics. And one great way of breaking dualisms is to be Trinitarian, Trinitarian about it. Um, and again, uh, of course, there is of course the, the famous the Godhead Trinity. Trinity, but there are other trinities like this Trinitarian relationship of of creator, human creator, and creation, and you can't get duality out of out of that trinity either. Shall we carry on now and start talking a little bit more about conversion? Because that was another strand that I thought in your writing, which was very interesting. So conversion in faith, but also conversion oh. in science and the ability to change your mind. Um, I thought mm. the bit was something that I was I was really interested in um, how you framed it. That's that there's something maybe that the method of science can teach us about how we understand our faith, about being lively people of change and conversion. Right. Yes. Now, I, yeah, you're reminding me of how that came out without designing it to be that way. But you're quite right. Um, I love I love the scientific community. I love being part of the scientific community because for many reasons. I mean, because because it's insistence on high standards of truth. Um, and of course, where they go wrong, it goes wrong occasionally, but yeah, it goes wrong. It, it, it's, 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 it's horrific. But also because people change their mind in the light of evidence. It's much harder than you think. 
Karl Popper. You know, I know we're supposed to drop our pet theories at the slightest refutation. No one ever does that. Um, and actually, no one would be right to do that either. It's very important that other relational goods like faith and love operate in science as well. But um, what one needs to change one's mind in the light of evidence and grow up in our understanding of the world. And that's one of the reasons why, for me, I, one reason I respond to this other question that people throw at me, look, has, isn't, isn't this thing about science? Is science all about fact? And religion is all about changeless, believing in changeless dogma without the slightest evidence. So how can you possibly bring these two together? And, and you know, well, those two aren't Sally's. I can't bring together, no. But it's an aunt Sally about science. Science isn't just about fact. It's about question. It's about openness. It's about living with unresolved questions. It's about tensions of things you'd love to be true, but don't seem to be true quite yet. But you still think they might be true because you haven't got all the data in. And it's important not to kill off scientific ideas at their birth, because like babies, they're not strong enough to survive in the world of all the data yet. I know this from my own scientific experience. I worked on a theory that was trampled on for 20 years and now it's accepted. But, um, it, you know, I knew we, those of us who loved it literally had to love it through its its infancy into existence. But also on the, on the Christian walk sides, I think science can teach Christians not to be like that. Don't believe, you don't have to believe in dogma in the spirit in in the face of evidence to the contrary or no evidence whatever um uh, our christian faith helps us understand the world and if if i i've changed the way that i've thought about my faith i've changed the way i've thought about trinity i've changed the way i've thought about what it means to be a christian over and over and over again um uh, so that that process of sort of micro conversion as well as macro conversion is something that i think is shared um and, and, and recognisably shared between Christians and, 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 and scientists. I think what's one of the reasons why, here's a little bit of empirical evidence, you may know that um, I have a project which I run between the University of York and Durham with um, uh, David Wilkinson, who's principal of St John's College Durham, David and I worked together for years and years. It's a project called Equipping Christian Leadership in an Age of Science, funded by the Templeton uh, Funds, and it helps equip the church to think in a fresh way about, about science and all the ways we've been discussing. But one of the things we do is invite senior Christian leaders, that would be bishops and equivalent moderators of large churches, senior leaders, um, into labs with senior scientists and get them to talk about the science and their framing. And often these communities are a little bit suspicious of each other at first. And I mean, the scientists aren't necessarily churchgoers or believers, but they're, they're open to it being important to communicate science to the church. And they're glad that these leaders have wanted to visit and so on. Um, the senior leaders, often science is not their strong suit, right? They, they're typically humanities trained. And if you're a bishop, you're supposed to be, you know, knowledgeable about things. So for a few minutes, it might be difficult, but only for a few minutes. And in conversation about the life and goals and hopes and failures and um, the fascination about the human mind or about the cosmos or about rocks and all, whatever we're talking about, uh, bonds are formed over and over again very, very quickly. And I think it's something to do with the fact that these church leaders and the scientists have so much in common, partly because they love to learn. They aren't in the business for wealth this is yeah you do something else if you were you're in the business because you you value this glorious precious gift 
um, of being able to love in the image of God, the creation that God made. And I think both scientists and people of faith are in the business of truth. But what the business of truth actually means is a bit of a complicated thing, isn't it? And do you have any reflections on if somebody came to you and said, yes, but is it true? Whether they were talking about Genesis 1 or whether they were talking about your particular research in science, what would you say to them? Well, I say, yeah, uh, yeah, true. But we have to understand what we mean by true. Um, so um, let's take, you know, Genesis 1 and the hydrogen atom as examples of how this, how you have to go beyond what you mean by true. Is Genesis 1 true? Well, yes, it is. Um, it's true on its inspired, God-breathed terms of speaking originally into an ancient Near Eastern culture who were not you know, mesmerised by the material as we are. Um, Genesis 1 speaks to a, a, an ancient Middle Eastern culture whose creation stories were creation of function and form and purpose. So that is what it is talking about. You might have noticed that Genesis doesn't start with nothing. It starts with staff um, and God forms it and breathes it. And it, it's, a, it, no, it's a temple seven day celebration of, of God taking residence in God's temple of creation. It's a liturgical document. Um, and then I might point to that people. So of course it's true on those terms. It's not true as a scientific material account. Of course it isn't. Uh, it's not written to a culture who even could notice one of those if it was served to it on a golden platter. Um, don't disrespect this inspired Bible by demanding that, twisting it into your shape. It's got its shape. Oh, and by the way, there are in the Old Testament alone at least 20 other creation stories. Let's look at Proverbs 8 and Job 38 and Psalm 33 and, and, uh, and see what other ways and language creation is talked about. So, you know, what way is this true? Yes, it's true. What way? Um, similarly, you know, OK, um, <laughs> yeah, a hydrogen atom has a cloud, is a, is, a, is a hard little thing called a proton in the middle with a cloud of an electron around it. Well, you know, that's a, what's that? That's a, probably a GCSE or sort of A-level description of, um, of a hydrogen atom. Is that true? Well, yeah, it's true in the language that a 16 year old interested in physics can understand. Um, but is it is it, is it an electron of cloud? Well, no, it, we don't really know what it is. It's a sort of transcendent thing. Is it a wave or a particle? Answer both and neither. How do you mean both and neither? Well, I mean, this is how we describe it mathematically. Now we're going into transcendent, you know, undergraduate and graduate worlds. We, no, I'm not saying that. That, okay, um, it, therefore the Bible should and could only be left to theologians who knew this graduate world stuff like the graduate quantum mechanics by no means any more than i'm saying that the the electron cloud is a wrong way of understanding the hydrogen atom. it's a rather good way of understanding the hydrogen um, atom but we have to also be aware of the limit of our current grasp of what we mean by true and the contextual meaning of what we're reading in front of us and what that means by true. 
I've probably lost people by that point, but you know, Paula, you got to. <laughs> no, I loved it. I was I was hanging on your every word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, just as we come to the end of our conversation, I think one of the things that most so you're able to talk um, kind of freely and articulately about how for you there is not a disjunction between science mm. and faith. But I think mm. many people who are not trained in science as you are kind of rather stumble when when kind of the usual responses come about faith being all about fairy tales and mm. science being really about facts and have a, never the twain shall meet. Do you have any kind of advice to people when they're kind of fumbling for the words and they really don't feel able to be able to articulate them very well? Is there, where would you, what would you suggest people try and think about, try and say um, that would respond to that kind of characteristic um, kind of response? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, well, I think, I, I mean, I think one thing you could just say is to just detention, just to first of all, just push back at the Aunt Sally's, like I did, a little, like we were talking a few minutes, minutes ago. Um, uh, that no, you know, I mean, um, we've um, recently would have had Easter and I found myself saying the other day that um, that Easter reminds us that our Christian faith is not devoid of fact actually it, it rests on certain historical happenings and facts of a crucified rebel prophet but one who rose again I mean that's a historical pivot and our experience as Christians what I'm saying you know, I'm, I want I want I was looking to make sense of a world in which I observed two things, both of which surprised me. This is something I say, maybe this will help. I, I became a Christian for an odd reason. For some people, evil, the existence of evil, is, is something that drives them away from God. For me, it had the opposite effect. How do you understand the existence of evil? How do you understand that there are happenings, things that people do that aren't relatively culturally bad, that in a different culture we might imagine would be wrong, would might be okay? No, no, no. You know, genocide is 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 wrong in some absolute way. And then you think how odd that is. How inside a system, how could anything be absolute? There's got to be echoes of something outside. I'm not saying it's a cast iron evidence, but echoes. I want to make sense of evil, um, of the observation. That's an empirical observation of evil. And I want to make sense of, in spite of the fact that we see evil in the world, we measure it, there is such a thing called hope. Why is there hope in the face of stuff that goes on, the darkest stuff? Uh, and there has to be a source for hope. And uh, you know, just, just as, as the scientist in me looks for a source of gravitational field, and finds mass or a source for electric field and finds charge. I have to say, maybe it's thinking metaphorically, but a source for hope. And for me, the kind of singularity from which all hope fundamentally bursts and has to rest is the resurrection. Uh, so that's a way in which, you know, in, in which my Christian faith as a sense of explaining the world I see to me and helping me live within it, is very much like the science that's explaining the world to me and explaining how I can live and understand within it. So that's, I think, the first approach I would take, just to remove that false polarization. Then we can start saying, you know, historically interesting things happen. Did you know 
that the invention of experimental method, which is bizarre when you think about it, you know, why should something as artificial, constructed and oversimplified as an experiment ever teach me about the complicated, wind-blown, stormy, cloudy world complex out there? And that was why experimental method didn't get invented before, before, before about 1600, because it obviously is a stupid thing to do. Huh. And then, then there's this little quiet story going throughout the medieval church, taken to early modern says, you know, but God, we've fallen. We've fallen from grace. And one of those consequences is that we don't understand the world in a way that the image of God should. But God, in God's grace, has given us a way back. Uh, and he gives us a way back just as, just, as, just as we can return as healed human beings through asking for forgiveness in simple ways and starting to do simple acts of loving care that turn us away from ourselves towards others. So with regard to mending our broken relationship with the world, we can start in simple ways called experiments. My goodness, would God have been generous enough to make that happen? Let's give it a whirl. That's the origin and the theology behind experimental science in the early 17th century. So, you know, uh, let's not be so surprised that in the past, this hand-in-handness of science and faith has, 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 has happened just as it happens today. Tom, it's been absolutely fabulous talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Let's hope for more. <laughs>